Welcome to Broadcast 1132. You can join us live every Sunday during our worship experience in Allen, Texas or at church1132.com. Perhaps you've heard this observation or something like it. Many sociologists who identify significant societal shifts related to children, educational philosophies, cultural diversity, attention spans, say that it was initiated by a specific American phenomenon. It celebrated its 49th anniversary this year. What do you think it is? You can tell me. Internet's a good answer, but not, that's not the one. Is it your birthday? My birthday? <laughs> yeah. Sesame Street. Now, you're, many of you in this room are a generation who grew up with Sesame Street from the beginning. Those of us who are a little older, we helped our children grow up with it. But the fact of the matter is, it was in, initiated... Uh, and celebrating its 48th, I said 49th, 48th birthday this year, the format and content of the show viewed daily by millions of American children and eventually children from all over the world. And it was a rapid-fire, fast-paced approach to directed learning. Some suggest it was the first step in a wholesale modification of a national attention span. At the time Sesame Street came into being, uh, the national attention span could be measured at about 30 minutes. Thus the formation of the average sitcom. They figured on television people would sit for about a half hour and endure and then they'd be ready to move on. That dropped down to about 10 years ago to 12 minutes. Now this is not good news for public speakers right here. <laughs> because the tragic news is, the current attention span is this. Eight seconds. Now I know Church 1132 is way different than that. But think of what that means for the average public speaker who stands up. If I don't somehow capture your attention in eight seconds and renew it and keep it every eight seconds, what happens? I lose you. Moreover, what is even more intriguing to me is what does this mean for my spiritual life? When I sit down and I want to hear from God, and I've been conditioned throughout the last number of decades that in eight seconds or less, I should hear or see or receive what I want to receive. And God says, well, wait a minute. It's going to take a little longer to turn this one out. There's a few things I need to work out in your life before you're able to even hear me. And I'll guarantee you it's going to take longer than eight seconds. It'll take longer than eight minutes often, longer than eight hours, many times longer than eight days, and sometimes even eight months or eight years because it is God who is at work in you to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. 
So that's why he talks about this cooperative relationship. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says to the Philippians, for it is God who is at work in you to do his goodwill and his pleasure. I want to talk about a certain aspect of this today, realizing that about every eight seconds, I'm going to have to get your attention all over again. <laughs> I spoke this word one other time, and I slammed the pulpit when I got everybody's attention, and there were two ladies over here who I think had a near cardiac arrest. <laughs> and I said, I better not do that again. I want to turn to James chapter 2 in a message called Practical Faith or Practically Faith. Practical Faith or Practically Faith. And I have a big idea that I want to put up there. Could we get the big idea up there before we go to the scripture? Do we have that or maybe not? That's my fault if we don't. Here's the, here's the big idea. Faith with works is practical faith. Faith without works is practically faith. Now James introduces this idea in James chapter 2 and I'm going to begin in verse 14 and ask you to follow along in a pretty lengthy reading of this passage but I think it will set the stage for what we want to hear from the Lord today. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If any one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, oh, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. The demons believe this and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. <clears throat> now that, I don't know what it does for members of this crowd this morning, but for Christians throughout the centuries, it has created tension. James, the earthly brother of Jesus and apostle, is generally accepted to have been the author 
used of the Holy Spirit to write this pastoral letter. Here's a passing reference to James from the Apostle Paul who recognized James' apostleship when he was talking about his travels to Jerusalem and he wrote about them to the Galatians. And he said, I saw none of the other apostles, speaking of the fact that he saw Peter there, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So Paul affirmed the apostleship of James. However, James the apostle he is took an approach to this topic of faith that has caused no small debate in the church. Over the centuries, because of this strong and inextricable link James draws between faith and works with that powerful statement that says, faith without works is dead. Now you may say, well, that makes perfect sense to me. Well, there are some pretty significant people in the history of the church. One, namely, Martin Luther, who thought quite differently. If you come from a Lutheran background, Martin Luther is the founder of your particular persuasion of Christianity. And Martin Luther found this book to be very, very troublesome. In fact, look what he wrote about it. St. James is really an epistle of straw compared to them, speaking of the other apostles, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. It is not the writing of any apostle, he said. Does that tell you old Martin Luther was having a struggle in his spirit over James' statements? Faith without works is dead. Here's another one that's even stronger. The epistle of James gives us much trouble, he says. For the papists, or those who followed the Pope of the Catholic Church, embrace it alone and leave out all the rest. Accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, then I shall make rubble also of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the fire. Speaking of James. Despite his angst, Luther ultimately embraced James as a legitimate book of the Bible. He even quoted from it in his theological writings and commentaries. However, he was more prone to quote statements from Paul. And he talked about these kinds of verses more often in his talks and writings. He says, as Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 11:6, And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. All the tensions mounting. (laughs) Paul says to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Ah, the tensions mounting. (laughs) He wrote to Titus and said, Paul, uh, uh, to his fellow leader Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs 
of the hope of eternal life. This, he said, is a trustworthy statement. I went into the store, by the way, to buy this little airplane. We have a, a group of Kroger stores up our way called uh, Fred Meyer. I guess down here, what are they, Dillon's or that kind of thing? Kroger? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, go to the Northwest. Nah, we're not going to call them Kroger, even though they're Kroger. We're going to call them Fred Meyer. No, they actually bought out a store called Fred Meyer, so part of their mass um, amassing of new stores. So I walk into Fred Meyer the other day and I said to the young man in the toy aisle, I'd like to buy a balsa wood airplane. And he went, a what? <laughs> I said, you know, a balsa wood airplane. He goes, well, what is that? And I said, it's a little toy airplane with a wind up rubber band propeller that you, it's a toy. Well, why would you want that? <laughs> And I said, well, I need it for an illustration for a talk I'm going to be giving. He goes, I've never heard of that. <laughs> they didn't have them, so I had to go to a place called uh, Bartell's Drug. It's kind of like Walgreens, and they had them. So I picked up my balsa wood airplane, something I've played with ever since I was a kid, and I began to recognize that there are so many things in my spiritual life that create tension for me. Opposing, apparently opposing ideas. And they might even cause me to question my faith, my belief, my trust. God is altogether merciful, but God is altogether just. God is love, but God hates sin. All things work together for good for those who love God, but bad things happen to good people. And isn't a lot of what we do along the way in working out our salvation actually working out the tension that's created between ideas like that? And what I have come to understand is that when I allow those ideas to exist in tension and I look at it from all, the, all those sides, all those angles, that eventually there will be the phenomenon of truth taking flight. And it will hit us, I'm glad not right between the eyes, but it will land in our laps. Truth takes flight often out of the tension of two apparently opposing ideas. And Paul comes to his group of people that he's trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus and he says, it is by faith you are saved, by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And James comes over here and he winds the prop on the also would plain and he says but faith without works is dead two apparently opposing ideas 
Some might say, well, maybe James just has a different idea of faith or even uses a different word. But the fact is, James uses the same Greek word as all the other New Testament writers to talk about faith. The Greek word is pistis. And the word means the idea of persuasion. I am persuaded that this is true. If I have faith, I could come to the edge of this platform and if I wanted to swing my legs over there and if I was a little younger I would even try to attempt it for real but I'm just going to let you imagine it along with me (laughs) and if I sat down on the edge of that platform I have faith or confidence I am persuaded that it would hold me and that would be born out of watching the fact that there was a whole group of people up here standing on the stage and I'm just one person and I could sit down and it would hold me. I have faith, I am persuaded and I have confidence that this will come to pass the way that I think it will come to pass. But what happens when something undermines that platform? Somebody comes along and says, oh, I'm going to get less. I know he tries to sit down on the edge of that platform every Sunday, and I I think I'm just going to, right there where he walks, I'm going to do a little cutting away. Which is what the enemy of our soul does, by the way. (laughs) And then one time I sit on it, and it gives way. And so now I have to, a whole new dilemma. Am I ever going to sit down on that platform ever again? But when faith is properly placed in the one in whom there is no shadow of turning, the one whose name is Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals, Jehovah Shalom, the one who brings peace, then I can be confident that even when the enemy of my soul or anybody else tries to cut things out from under me, that God will make sure that when I sit down, it's going to be okay to sit down. But it's a tension. And James used exactly the same word for faith as Paul did and all the other scripture writers. Here's a working definition of faith that I've developed over the years. It's kind of drawn from different sources. It's not totally original, but I've adapted it for what I think works for me. It is a deeply rooted confidence in something or someone that engenders trust, even when devoid of tangible physical evidence or empirical proof, especially with reference to God. So when I put my trust and confidence in the Lord, for instance, when the Proverbs writer says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are spiraled up. They are saved is the way we translate it. The Hebrew word is spiraled up like a spiral staircase. So when the name of the Lord is the the place or the source of my confidence, then I have an entirely different perspective. 
Others suggest that the key to understanding and resolving this apparent tension between the idea of faith and works is to understand the respective audiences Paul and James were addressing. Paul is addressing basically two different audiences. One group were people who were spiritually lost, inexperienced, immature, and they needed to embrace the potency of God's grace. When you talk to people about Jesus, what is one of the common answers people give about how, oh, I don't think I can become a Christian because I'm too bad. I'm just too bad. I've done too many bad things. The fact of the matter is, Paul wanted that group of people to know that there was nothing that they could do that would separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is neither height nor depth, nor principality or power, nor things present or things to come, or, I love the line he uses, or anything else that can separate me from the love of God in Christ He's addressing that crowd. The one who says, oh, I just don't know if I'm worthy enough. And he says, there's not any amount of worthiness you can bring to the Lord that's going to make a spitting difference. All you do is just bring yourself. And he accepts you exactly as you are. There's another group of people that Paul addresses, and they're the experienced religious people who were placing a whole lot of confidence in themselves and what they did in order to be saved. In fact, there's a whole group of them who are saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to follow the rite of Jewish circumcision. And if you don't follow that rite, then you can't become a Christian. And Paul said, God did not send his son to die for us so that we would continue to be bound up by these lawful requirements. He set us free. He set us free in order to be free, not to be bound by the law. So you see, here's the groups of people Paul's writing to, and in order to get through to them, he's got to say to them in forceful terms, you are saved by grace through faith and nothing else. James, on the other hand, is writing to a group of seasoned believers. People who claim to have deep faith, who had experienced salvation, more mature, more seasoned, more responsible. And James looked at them and said, I'm tired of just hearing you talk about your faith. It's time for you to do something about your faith. He says, the devil, the devils, the demons believe in the name of God. And they shudder when they do. How much more when you grab hold of the depth and the breadth of the love of Jesus should you be motivated, James says, to go out and do good works. 
My personal conclusion is that Paul and James were saying exactly the same thing. There seemed to be no conflict in the mind of either teacher about the complementary relationship between faith and action. For instance, earlier I quoted Paul's letter to Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Just read a few verses down from that. In Titus 3.8, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. That's Paul. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Ephesians 2.10 is a hallmark passage on what Paul thinks about the link between faith and works. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As for James, he opens the chapter we're dealing with today, chapter 2 in his letter, with a call to grace and mercy. He said, don't ignore the poor in preference to the rich. Show mercy, show grace. Don't judge others because we're all guilty of breaking the law in one way or another, which requires a dispensation of God's grace to us. So let's deal with others like we're expecting God to deal with us. He says in uh, James 2.13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. And here's one of my favorite short sentences in the Bible. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Paul says, embrace grace and mercy and do what is right. And James says, do what is right and embrace grace and mercy. Perhaps James and Paul's ideas are trumped by the words of the one who speaks above all. His name is Jesus, and in John 14, listen to just a few of the things he said about this idea. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them. And show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. Love drives me to do extraordinary things. I have a niece who's met a young man. They're in a 
church plant in Bellingham, Washington, north of where I live, up toward the Canadian border. He moved out in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit to plant a church there, along with a team of people, a pastor, and he's part of that team. And lo and behold, part of what God seems to have in mind is that he met my niece as well. He wants to take my niece home to meet his family in the Chicago area. And my niece is terrified (laughs) of airplanes. She won't get on an elevator because when the doors close, she has terrible attacks of anxiety. She'll take the stairs 10 flights if she has to in preference to an elevator. Some of you know that phenomenon. She always, when she goes into a room, immediately looks for ways of escape. When the doors close on a car, she has to take a deep breath. Now, she's growing and changing in all of these things, but the idea of getting her on an airplane Until what? Till love happened. (laughs) So her boyfriend and her parents go to the airport. They're going to fly to Chicago. They're on a late night red eye from Seattle to Chicago. And she's crying and weeping (laughs) and tense and but she lays her head in his shoulder and cries it out and he pats her on the back and he shows her all the love and she gets on the airplane. And then they find out, he, he writes back and he said, it was the most turbulent flight I have ever been on. <laughs> Jordan happens to be a black young man. My niece is white like me. So he said her little white fingers pressed into his cocoa black arm. And he said, I was a white person most of the trip. (laughs) Isn't it amazing what love will allow us to do. And I think what Paul and James are really saying, what they're urging us toward is this one word that I want you to walk away with today. It's the word congruence. You remember your old geometry class. Congruent circles are identical circles. Congruent squares are identical squares. Outside of geometry, the congruent word means in agreement or harmony. And in other applications and in pastoral counseling, we use this word a great deal. We say your communication needs to be congruent with your attitudes and your actions. If I tell you that I love you and I do so with a certain tone of voice, 
you'll walk away and say, oh, you said the words, but I don't believe you. In fact, a study was done back in the 60s by a psychologist by the name of Albert Morabian, and a lot of new work has been built on it through the years, but the basic uh, findings of the study remain. Communication is 7% words, 38% tone or inflection, and 55% body language. So if I came up here this morning and started preaching to you and said, oh, I'm so glad you're here today, and I preached the whole message right here, what message would you receive? He doesn't care about us, or he's afraid. He can't even look us in the eye. He doesn't even know we're here. The words would disappear. It wouldn't matter. And so it is with faith. Let our confession of faith and confidence in God be congruent with our actions. If I confess faith in God, that I have a deeply rooted trust and confidence in Him, and that I want my actions to reflect that trust and confidence, then Jesus says, I will help you achieve that goal. But I must admit, sometimes it's tough. If the worship team wants to come on up, they can. Sometimes I say to Jesus statements like this. I have trust and confidence in you, Jesus but not enough to stop worrying about that. I have trust and confidence in you, Jesus, but not enough to obey your instructions about my sexuality. I have trust and confidence with you in you, Jesus, but not enough to step out into that arena that you seem to be tugging me to become involved in because that's not my comfort zone. I have trust in you, Jesus. I believe in you, but not enough to start tithing on that financial blessing you've brought into my life. I have trust in you, Jesus, but not enough to forgive those who so egregiously offended me. I have trust in you, Jesus, but not enough to love that cranky neighbor that lives next to me. You see the difference between practical faith and practically faith? The demons have what is practically faith, but not quite. Because their actions in no way align with their belief. 
because they believe God and it makes them quiver. But practical faith says that I will take steps into areas and into regions unknown. I will do things that I don't know exactly what the outcome will be except that God promised He would be with me. I will put my trust and confidence in Him and Him alone for not only my eternal life and salvation, but for my daily walk with Him. Because it is summarized by James' own words. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about us at church1132.com.